Um, there is going to be a children's nativity pageant on the 18th, and we've asked Julie to come and share some specifics about that with a friend of hers. Two friends, actually. Okay. I am so excited for December the 18th. All of the children will come up on the stage and show you the Christmas story, God's theater style. If you are a parent of a three-year-old through a fifth grader, raise your right hand and repeat after me. I will be here on December 18th. Let's go. Repeat after me. I will be here on December 18th. My child will either be an angel or a shepherd. And they will be in costume. All right, just for a little sneak peek of what you will see on the 18th, I've asked my friend Bren to sh- do her lines for you. All right. Now they are shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they are greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. And for there is born to you the city of David, my Savior, who is Christ the Lord. All right, if you're worried about bringing your child with their costume, just let me give you a little uh, preview of my house. I'll be bringing three shepherds, two angels, one baby Jesus, and a partridge in a pear tree. Thank you, Julie. You talk about being upstaged. My goodness, that's great. While you're making your way back to your seats, if you, uh, at any age... When you look at your calendar over the next week or maybe multiple weeks, if there are final exams on your calendar, if you will stand up, wherever you are, if you will stand up. Over half of you. Uh, for the first time in many years, I actually have finals on my calendar this week. So I would like to pray over you as one of you, feeling the feelings that you are feeling and not knowing the things that you are not knowing right now, but you will know later this week. So uh, if you guys will join with me in praying over all of us who have finals this week. Father, I thank you that you've created us with a really miraculous ability to take in information and to learn and to make connections. And uh, in the midst of that miraculous thing about us, I also admit and confess that We're not always taking in and making the connections that maybe we need to be making. And so for all of us that are facing final exams, I ask that you would give us all peace, that you would give us all perseverance, that we would study well, and that the excellence of our studies would be reflective of who you are. 
And for the students here that are in college and the finals mark the last thing they need to do before they go back home, uh, for those of them that are going to homes that are joyful and safe, I ask that you would help them to be reflective of the, the gift they have and they would express that to their families, the, the precious gift that it is that they can come home to a place like that. And for students that are going home to a place that maybe isn't so safe and maybe isn't so joyful, I ask that you would protect them, you would hide them under the shadow of your wings, and that you would give them peace in the midst of that place. Thank you for this season of Advent. I ask you to give us all peace and be present with us. Amen. You can be seated. Um, one last thing. The great thing about getting stage time is you can really do whatever you want to, because I, I guess Ellery could turn my mic off, but I'm pretty loud anyway. Um, the first time I had an interaction what, with what became Seven Hills Fellowship was about 10 years ago, and it was in Brian Pierce's living room, and there were some snacks, and I think it was just the, uh, the Baileys and the Carols. I don't know if they're here, but I think it was just us and the Pierce's. And uh, for, for a good while, it was just a gathering in the Pierce home, hearing from the Pierce's about what their vision was for what was going to happen. And there's not many of us left from that Pierce time, and we're losing another one of those families. Uh, Wilson and Monty, where are you? I'm embarrassing you just a little bit. Oh, there's Wilson right there. I don't know where his wife, Monty, is. Sorry. Um, so this is their last Sunday here as residents of Rome. They close on their house tomorrow and move up to Chattanooga. And so we're really excited for them, but I know that for my family that we're really going to miss them. And uh, I just want you guys to know that you've meant so much to our family and to this community. And so if you also have been impacted by Wilson and Monty, uh, yeah, (laughs) there's Monty, Um, please go share that with them uh, before they leave today, uh, because this is a big time for them. Okay, so to transition, how many of you have, uh, at some point in your life, received a really long letter or maybe a really long email or a really long Voxer message or whatever form of communication in this magical world of 2016 you use, a really long communication from somebody you really love and it really impacted you and it really meant a lot to you and you wanted to keep it forever? Anybody have one of those, just a few a lot, some of you, most of you, most of you, okay. If not, just imagine what that would be like. It'd be really nice. Uh, but for all of us, imagine that, that letter actually being written to somebody else, but also having, having some meaning to you. It was initially written to somebody else, but, but has some meaning for you. It was also written almost 2,000 years ago. It was also written in a language that you don't know. It has to be translated. And you're just going to read one paragraph in the middle of that six or ten page letter and try to get really significant meaning out of it for your life. That seems rather unrealistic. That's our task for this morning. Uh, And I don't say this to discourage you or to encourage you to check out or zone out or to physically leave, but um, when, when right now we're going through the book of Ephesians, and that is a letter And when you go through something like that and you just take it in little chunks, piece by piece, it's really easy to to get lost. And it's easy to read just one little section in the middle of it and think, wow, that makes, I I don't know what that's saying and that seems rather irrelevant to me. 
And the reality is, that's a natural challenge, because this was a letter written 2,000 years ago in another language to, immediately, another people, but it does have significance for us. And so I'm going to read through the chunk that we're on right now, and my encouragement to you, in light of the discouraging words I just shared, is if in the middle of me reading this, if you feel like your eyes are glazing over or your brain is glazing over, stay with me. Because what we're going to do is we're going to just, instead of picking apart this one paragraph word for word, we're going to look at what this paragraph means in the context of the letter as a whole, in the context of the New Testament as a whole, in the context of the story of God as a whole, and really see what it means for us today. And so stick with me in this. This is the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 3, and this is verses 1 through 13. So Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read it slowly. If you feel like you're lost, just stay with it. All right? Ephesians 3. And here it is. Uh, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Pray with me again briefly. Father, I, um, I thank you that you, in your sovereignty, uh, preserved this letter that was written so long ago to a people we'll never meet, from a man we'll never meet, at least on this earth, and that you preserved it for us because it has something to say to us. And I ask that you would help us to see your truth and your wisdom this morning and that we would leave not just with more information, with new connections made, but we would leave inspired and moved to live more authentically the life that you have called us to. Please speak this morning. Amen. So this little paragraph and this little letter and this New Testament in the Word of God, what's it about? Well, the letter of Ephesians was written by Paul. Paul was like missionary number one, poster child of Christianity, In the early years, he traveled all around Eurasia, planted churches, visited churches, encouraged them. And this is a letter written to the church in Ephesus. 
And Ephesus was a city that Paul lived in for three years. He visited multiple times. He got kicked out of Ephesus because he was being too effective in sharing the gospel. And Ephesus was the second most prominent city in the Roman Empire. Huge city. They had a theater that sat 50,000 people. Okay, so Rome, Georgia, got nothing on Ephesus. 50,000 person theater. Uh, Ephesus also had the Temple of Diana, which was a, a temple to worship Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It took 220 years to build the Temple of Diana, almost the age of the United States of America. So, major city, totally not Christian, but there is this young church in Ephesus, and Paul is writing them. And Paul is writing them from prison. Paul is under house arrest. He is stuck in this house all day. At night, he has a a guard chained to him so that he can't escape. So Paul's in prison. He's writing these people that he's visited a few times, lived with for three years in Ephesus. And last week, Brian uh, Pierce talked about the previous passage, and what that passage talked about was the fact that God broke down a wall. That there was this wall that separated Jews from Gentiles, which is a really significant thing. And that wall also separated all people from God. In the gospel, the fact that Christ, Son of God, God in flesh, came to earth, lived, died, and rose again, that action, his death, his blood, his resurrection, destroyed this wall that separated Jews, God's chosen people, from the Gentiles, all of us. And this wall that separated God's presence from us, that wall of sin and separation, he broke it down. And so this passage starts with, for this reason... So because God broke down this wall, because God ended this separation for this reason, and then he actually kind of goes off on a rabbit trail. This whole passage right here that we're talking about is kind of a stream of consciousness thing that Paul does a lot. And he kind of rambles and gets off what he's really wanting to talk about. But God is sovereign, and he uses it. And so instead of, again, going word for word or uh, praise for praise through this paragraph, I just want to look at it as a whole and see what theme kind of jumps out. And so if you'll pop up the whole passage here, we're not going to read it because it's really, really small, but I did highlight in red something that is recurring. You'll see the word mystery, 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 mystery. Four times in these two paragraphs, the words, the word mystery. And if Dr. Carroll is here, he's a resident journalism professor, and he will tell you that using the same word over and over again is poor writing. You don't want to do it want to be diverse with your word selection. Unless it's intended, unless it's purposeful, unless it's used as a tool. And I think in this case it is. Paul uses the word mystery four times in this passage. He uses it two more times in his letter to the Ephesians, and he uses it a dozen more times throughout all the letters he wrote to the churches. He talks about the mystery over and over and over and over again. Mystery, 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 mystery. And in this little sidetrack of his main train of thought, what he's talking about is the wall that was broken down by God between Jews and Gentiles and all of the people in God is part of the mystery of the gospel. And that everything he does, his whole life, is rooted in the idea of this mystery. And so if you go to the next slide, this word mystery, again, the letters were written in another language, written in Greek, 
And so the Greek word that we translate as mystery is mysterion. We didn't change it that much. Uh, And the word mysterion means mystery, hidden thing, not obvious to the understanding. And again, because this letter was written 2,000 years ago, it's important to understand what this word had significance for at that time. And at Paul's, in Paul's day, the word mysterion was used mostly to describe mystery religions. And we, we would probably call them cults today. And mystery religions were these like small religious groups that had these secret rites and these secret truths and these secret insights into the mysteries of the universe. And if you were going to be a steward of that mystery, if you were part of one of these mystery religions, the most important task you had was to guard the mystery, to keep the mystery safe, to keep the mystery secret. Because only the people that get initiated into that mystery religion have the privilege of hearing the mystery and the secret of that religion. And what Paul does is he takes that idea and flips it on its head and says, I am called to take this mystery to everyone. Listen to these words. We're not going to bring it back up on the screen, but if you've got, uh, if you've got your Bible open, again, in this passage, chapter 3, listen to verses 8 and following. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In Paul's day, if you were part of a mystery religion, your job was to keep it secret. As Gandalf would say, keep it secret, keep it safe. And what Paul is saying is the mystery of the gospel is meant to be spread and shared with everyone. This is not a typical mystery religion. This is the mystery. And this is the mystery that is meant to not be kept hidden, but to be spread through all the world. And so the reason Paul uses that word mystery, 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 over and over again, if you go to the next slide, it's because the mystery of the gospel defined Paul's life. And we see that in his story as well as his vocation. Because Paul was not always Paul. Paul was born Saul. In Saul's first job, he was like, before he was the Christian poster child, he was the Jewish poster child. Did all the training, all the schooling, and his job was to go find these subversive Christians who didn't respect the wall, the wall of the law, the wall of tradition, the wall that said that the Jews were God's people and nobody else was. That was Saul's life. He was, his existence was to protect the wall. And so his life was dedicated to finding, imprisoning, and executing Christians, these people that would tear down the wall of law and tradition that was Saul's life. And Jesus met him in the midst of that vocation and revealed the mystery of the gospel, the mystery that Christ really did come 
that he really did live, that he really did die, that he really did rise again, not just for the Jews, but for all people. And so Paul's life, formerly Saul, first became defined by the mystery because he felt like he was unworthy of it. He had dedicated his life to destroying the lives of those that would share this mystery. So his first taste of the mystery of the gospel was the forgiveness and the redemption and the reconciliation that he himself received. And throughout his writing says, man, if anybody's not worthy of it, it's me. If anybody is not deserving of it, it's me. But the mystery is that he forgives me as well. And it defines his life in that this, this group of people, the Gentiles, everybody that wasn't a Jew, that God would invite everyone to his table and invite Paul, the chief persecutor of these Christians, to be the primary vessel to spread the mystery of the gospel. How crazy is that? Paul's entire story is rooted in the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of Christ coming and living and dying and rising again. And because of that, every aspect of Paul's life is mysterious. And I want to explain what I mean by that. One example, if you go to the next slide, Paul's life was marked by mysterious joy. Mysterious joy. Now keep in mind, the word mystery means hidden most basically, like, there's no natural explanation for it. If we can't explain it away, if we can't rationalize it, if there's no logical explanation, it's mysterious. And if you read all of the letters that Paul wrote and you read Acts that tells about his journeys, basically Paul was either preaching, on his way to preach, or in prison. And he was, on, he was in prison a lot. And he was in prison when he wrote Ephesians. He was also in prison when he wrote a letter to the Philippians. And in the letter to the Philippians, another word he uses over and over again, he's all about repetition. He used the word joy 16 times in a relatively short letter written from prison. And here's a little excerpt from this letter written from prison in which he uses the word joy 16 times. I want you to know, brothers at Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the word joy is not in this passage, 16 times in the letter, but it's not in this passage. But I don't think there's a better picture of what what was brought about by Paul's mysterious joy. Because the entire imperial guard was not introduced to Christ because they signed up for Paul's tea and cookies Bible study in his prison cell. It was not because Paul had an evangelic cube that he shared with the imperial guard. It was not because he somehow was able to trick the imperial guard into sitting and, and listening to him for hours. Paul's presence as a prisoner was mysterious. The imperial guard, all they did was take care of prisoners. They didn't care about them at all. 
But when they came in contact with this one prisoner whose life was defined by mysterious joy, they could not help but being curious about an explanation for this mystery. What is your secret, Paul? The imperial guard was introduced to the mystery of the gospel because Paul's life was defined by that mystery. And he had joy that was not defined by his circumstances, by the injustices that were done to him. They were defined by the reality of how the mystery of the gospel had transformed his life. And his joy drew other people into the reality of that mystery. Throughout the early church, the same thing was true. I want to read an excerpt from a letter that was between two people that were completely opposed to Christianity, but were also really confused by what was going on in the Christian church in the first few centuries. If we can get that up. Yes, this is from 130 AD, so just about 100 years, a little over 100 years after Jesus rose. When punished... This is talking about the Christian community. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. The early church was so aware of how the mystery of the gospel was transformative for them bringing forgiveness, bringing redemption, bringing reconciliation, bringing them from darkness into light. Those who were not a people being declared a people. That suffering was cause for rejoicing. And persecution did not prompt them to fight for their rights or to start a political movement but to rejoice in the Savior. And the people that didn't get this mystery hated them, but had no justification for that hatred. Let me tell you about my joy. My joy can be dampened by a winter rain shower. My joy can be derailed by missing out on the grilled chicken on the salad line at work. My joy can be kind of put off track if I've got some obligation that keeps me from watching the football game that I want to watch. I have a joy that's, that's kind of fickle and inconsistent. I have a joy that's not mysterious most of the time. Because my joy is really tethered to my experience. My joy is usually tethered to my circumstances. And so people are typically not so curious about my joy. What about your joy? Is the joy of your life rooted in and anchored in and defined by the mystery of the gospel that has transformed you? Is it not just a surface happiness that is blown away by the simplest of inconveniences, Or is it anchored in a hope that cannot be thwarted? The mystery of the gospel that is meant to not be kept hidden, 
but spread to all the world is going to be spread by people whose joy is inexplicable and unexplainable. Paul's life was also defined by mysterious kindness. Paul's life was defined by a mysterious kindness. And to exemplify that, I'm going to read a passage from the book of Acts. And Acts is basically a narrative story of Paul's missionary adventures. So the the letters that we're referring to, Ephesians and Philippians, are written in the context of this narrative that we get in Acts. So listen to this passage from Acts. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Reading this passage, you might think, well, I don't really get the kindness thing. This seems like a good example of integrity or honesty or whatever, not leaving prison when you could. But here's what you have to understand. If you're a Roman soldier and your job is to guard a prison, one prisoner gets out, you're dead. No trial, no defense, no act of God. It was an earthquake. What am I going to do? Prisoner escapes, you're dead period. And everyone knew that. So for Paul, when the walls collapsed, for Paul to not say, hey, God's provided for my release, peace, I'm out. Instead, for Paul to say, I'm going to subordinate my life for the sake of yours. I'm going to stay in here and somehow encourage the rest of these prisoners to also stay here. To save your life. There's nothing more kind. There's nothing more kind. And again, in the early church, the followers of Christ were known for a mysterious and unexplainable and inexplicable kindness that was informed by the mystery of the gospel that had changed them. Listen to this. Uh, excerpt from a very frustrated letter from Emperor Julian, not King Julian of the Madagascar films, but the Roman Emperor Julian, who really, really hated Christians really deeply. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, the impious Galileans, that was his his term for Christians, impious Galileans, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Emperor Julian's writing this to a pagan priest saying, uh, so we look really bad because these heathen Christ followers are taking care of our people. They're not just taking care of their people, they're taking care of our people and we look bad. So this is not a Christian 
advertiser promoting the good works of Christianity, this is one of the primary opposers of Christianity who is facilitating the feeding of Christians to lions. And he's frustrated because these people in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, are taking care of the sick people that would kill them. When a plague hit the city of Alexandria, the Christians were so enthusiastic about caring for the plague victims that people started joking that the Christians were confused and thought the plague was a festival. Such was their mysterious kindness. My kindness. can be overturned by a really slow cashier or a child who's really slow in getting on pajamas and brushing teeth. I have a fickle kindness. And often my kindness is not mysterious at all because just like every other human's kindness that is reciprocal. You be kind to me, I'll be kind to you. Nothing mysterious about that. Everybody's that way. A mysterious kindness is one that is kind against all logic, against all reason, against all explanation. And the church exploded in the midst of persecution, not because of a good strategy, not because of pithy bumper stickers, but because the way they lived their lives was mysterious. It was so mysterious that people were drawn to it, and people came asking, what is your secret? What is different? And we could sit here for the rest of the day and talk about Paul's mysterious humility, his mysterious hope, his mysterious peace, his mysterious this, that, and the other. But I think what we, what we got to do is ask, what was different about Paul? Why was it that every aspect of his life was so mysterious, so marked by this mystery? I can't go visit him, but from reading everything he wrote that still is around, I get the impression that when Paul woke up in the morning, whether he was preaching or on a ship or in prison or wherever, when he woke up in the morning, immediately his mind and his heart were seized by the reality of the mystery. It just seeped out of him. He was constantly riveted by the fact that his life was saved by the mystery of the gospel. And because throughout his days and his weeks and his months and his years, his mind and heart were continually anchored in and fixed on this mystery, it seeped out of everything he said and it seeped out of everything that he did. And when I survey my own mind and my own heart, it's just fractured. It's filled with family budgets and deadlines and school assignments and political concerns and weight loss programs. It's all over the place. And because my thoughts and my feelings are all over the place, every aspect of who I am is pretty much all over the place. I have a kindness that's all over the place. I have a joy that's all over the place. I have a peace that's all over the place. It's the natural fruit of what I dwell on. 
And so our call today is not to muster up a kindness that looks a little bit different or to muster up a joy that looks a little bit different. Our call today is, like Paul, to when we wake up in the morning, for our first thought not to be our calendar or if we have any new alerts on our social media, but to reflect on and be ruined in the greatest way possible by the fact that the mystery of the gospel has changed our life for eternity. And if, if we can anchor our minds and our hearts just in that reality, the reality of Christ with us, the Emmanuel that we celebrate in the Advent season, it will slowly and by degrees make our joy a mysterious joy that has no explanation. It will make our kindness a mysterious kindness that defies all logic. Our hope and our peace and our sacrifice, every aspect of who we are will be different because what we're fixated on is different. If we become people of the mystery that we have been changed by, we won't have to worry about an evangelism strategy because the people around us will be desperate to know what the secret is to our mysterious life. Father, I confess that I, I know the mystery of your gospel intellectually about as well as anybody. But my days are so rarely shaped by that mystery. in my desperate plea for myself and for everybody here, is that you would wake us up in the morning and just hit us in the face with the profound nature of the mystery of the gospel. That you would take us who are unworthy and declare us worthy. That you would take us who are beyond redeeming and redeem us and reconcile us and make us new and make us beautiful. Father, I ask that you would make us people of the mystery.